Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, where we explore the exciting science behind heart rate variability. The material discussed in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Please check with your medical provider to make sure any suggestions or strategies are right for you. Visit us at the OptimalHRV.com website to learn more about the Optimal HRV app, download a free copy of Matt's book, Heart Rate Variability, and also get show notes and additional resources around heart rate variability and its applications. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I am Matt Bennett here back with you with a new friend of mine that I met uh, at a conference recently uh, in Texas. So, uh, it was my first in-person conference, the Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback, the AAPB, uh, which is a lot easier, uh, for me to say this morning. So I got Anna Pollard here, Pollard here, excuse me, I stumble on those names, but I'm excited to bring Anna to the podcast uh, because she brings the student perspective. And one of the things that I really realized um, as I am now pushing 50 is that I'm sort of in the older echelon at these conferences. And with the biofeedback, um, you know, if you've never been to a biofeedback conference, there's a lot of tech there. And I've always been interested in tech. I, I wouldn't ever call myself necessarily an early adopter, but I'm not necessarily uh, the latest adopter as well. Uh, but, but when I met Anna, I was really fascinated as uh, kind of her life in some ways started more in technology than mine did and where she is starting uh, her career out um, in this intersection of mental health and technology. And obviously we'll throw a little heart rate variability in there as well. So Anna, um, just give uh, our audience a little bit of an introduction on, on you and uh, where you currently are at in your career. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so yes, I am in my fourth year in a PhD doctoral program in San Diego. I'm going to be starting my APA internship this summer in Minnesota at a VA. So um, that's kind of where I'm at in terms of like schooling. I'm a health emphasis and it's interesting. I didn't come into uh, my school, you know, I'm like, oh, I want to do biofeedback. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I was applying to practicum and I didn't get placed where I wanted. And so I was like, I don't know what to do. And a colleague of mine told me to apply to the pain program and they do biofeedback there. And I was like, well, one, I have no idea how to work with patients with chronic pain. I have no idea what biofeedback is. And so I applied and got placed there, right? <laughs> and uh, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because now chronic pain is my area of interest um, along with trauma and substance abuse disorders. And then biofeedback, I ended up getting board certified in it uh, through BCIA. So um, that's how I got into it. Um, I've been out here in San Diego for about a little three and a half years and I plan to stay out here and, um, yeah, I fell in love with it at that practicum. I saw it change patients' lives. I saw how people, you know, that were new to mental health, but they saw the numbers and they're like, okay, I can get with that therapy. I'm not so sure yet. Numbers that makes sense to me. And so it was very much like a rapport building kind of the, um, kind of help them in terms of like, if they were really a numbers person that kind of opened their eyes to, okay, but does that have to do with my mental health and full circle? They fell in love with it. Then they ended up doing therapy. They combined the both or both approaches and 
they made some major improvements. It was the best thing I ever did. That That is awesome. Well, I'm excited to jump into that, but I know the audience as myself has a, uh, just a question I need to ask. Uh, going from San Diego to Minnesota, have you been through a Minnesota winter yet? Uh, oh, have yeah. you had that experience? <laughs> oh yeah, I grew up there actually. Uh, my mom and my grandma live out there, so I'm going to be getting to spend some time with them, which will be really nice. So yeah, I definitely think that my tolerance has changed for coldness, but <laughs> we're going to have to do a lot of uh, slow breathing to manage with the cold. Am I right? So <laughs> there, there we go. Okay. So, so now we don't have to be worried about that transition for you. Uh, so one of the reasons uh, I, I really wanted to, to talk with you, what was this connection between um, technology and mental health? Uh, it sounds like we started in many ways with, with a general interest in mental health. And uh, you've really much quicker than I did in my career, though the technology is much easier to assess right now, have really integrated this into how you deliver uh, mental health. And I just would love to learn a little bit about your journey um, into the biofeedback uh, realm. Definitely. And I think that integration is so powerful. I saw it personally for myself when I had a head injury when I was younger. They use neurofeedback and psychotherapy to help me recover from that. Um, being able to actually see your brain change was yes. wild. And I was like 21 years old thinking, you know, like I've damaged it. You know, what, what can I do? And, you know, a lot of times our patients, they feel like they're stuck. They're hopeless. This is just how their body's going to be, especially if they've had trauma or injury, medical conditions. And so it, the numbers set, almost give a sense of hope because you can yeah. see change. Sometimes when it comes to like subjective change, it's good, right? And we have those self-report measures, but sometimes that doesn't always change depending on what measure we use. But what's nice about like using um, like biological data or objective information like HRV and EEG is that you can see it actually improve, um, you know, out of your control kind of, like it just happens because of the intervention. And so I, it was that. And then like with all the mobile apps that are coming out too, it's incredible how, you know, when you have patients track their symptoms on these apps, whether it's with HRV apps or even just like, you know, if it's like depression, anxiety, it's cool how you can bring therapy outside of that one hour session that's in that week. They can track their symptoms throughout the whole week. And then what's awesome is whether or not they're, they're tech savvy or not. What's nice for me is because I have been, you know, exposed to technology since the beginning is I can, you know, I will print out their outcomes and do a little graph, put the month so they can kind of go, okay, what was going on during this month? What was going on during that week? Yeah. And it makes sense to them. They're like, oh, so that, you know, when I do that behavior, it does affect me. Or when I don't do that behavior, it affects me. So that's how I've seen it. It's like, it's in terms of like HRV, it's mobile apps. Mm -hmm. um, and it's cool. Like something that I'm really interested in doing at the VA, if they, you know, they said they offered it. So I hope I can is virtual reality. I think that's going to be really cool. Um, Cause I think in terms of, you know, whether people are tech savvy or not, the nice thing about like biofeedback is, you know, if the person who is trained through VCI training, they help them through it. And part of the intervention is teaching them all about it. And they, it's yeah. something for them to get excited about. It's for something, it's like, I remember at your presentation, it's like the new x-ray for them to understand yeah. themselves. And I think that was a really great way to describe it for them because a lot of times they're like, well, I don't know if I'm getting better. I can't really tell, you know, my spouse says I'm getting better, but I don't see it. And then they see it on their outcomes. They see it on their, um, like the objectives, the self-report, and they see the trends over time. 
it's empowering, it's exciting, and it's hopeful. And I don't know, every time I've given a patient that sheet of paper and they see that graph, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm actually getting better. And even if it's like a little bit, it's something. And it gives them the chance to see like things can change. And that, that is to me where, where my excitement around, you know, heart rate variability uh, just seemed to stick out uh, to me, that, though I know that there's other obviously metrics out there and ways to do it. One of the things when I, when I talk to cl- clinicians, and I, I love what you're also talking about this, is that pairing it with the subjective measures that, that we do have. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that we sometimes live in this all or nothing society where, oh, you got to throw everything out and do heart rate variability. And, and like, I don't want you to throw out your intuition. I don't want to throw out your depression scales. Like this allows uh, the, some of the language, and, and I borrow this from uh, uh, the person that introduced me to this, uh, what's happening underneath the skin. And I, I just kind of wonder as a, as a clinician using both the subjective and sort of the, these objective measures, uh, I wonder, like, what sort of insight does that give the, the clients that, that, that you're looking at? Because that seems like a really powerful mix um, that, that I didn't have early on in my clinical work. Totally. I think what is the drawback of some of our measures that we often use is it's about symptom reduction. And a lot of the measures don't ask about quality of life or um, what's the word? Um regulation. They don't really ask about that. So it's like, yeah, you could still have, let's say cravings for alcohol. Does it mean that that's a bad thing? Not really. It depends if you can manage it or not. That's the, that's the point, but those scales don't always ask that. And so what I think is nice about combining it is sometimes I'll show patients, I go, so, you know, it actually says your pain didn't change, but your HRV improved. Um, and then if I always like to include some type, some type of like quality of life measure or some type of, um, I'm very act based. So like things like how fused are they to their pain or whatever symptoms they have or their beliefs, um, how much are they committed to their values and committing to actions that are in line with their values. I think those measures are, you know, we don't see them a lot because, you know, it's not, it's not like the standard measures, but I think those, I hope those get more prominent because, you know, I always, I think patients sometimes get bummed because they look at their, let's say they look at their BDI, like back depression inventory, right? And they see not really any change and they go, oh, well, I didn't get better. And I go, well, you got a job, you are connecting with your friends again, and you got out of bed this morning. That the questionnaire doesn't ask that. Right, and, exactly. And not to put down those measures, they're great. They help us really understand the pathology changes, but they miss the part about how sometimes with chronic illnesses or chronic symptoms, we can still get better. It's just a measure we don't see. And HRV picks up on that. Um, and yeah. I think that's really powerful is that when the patient sees that, they go, oh, well, that part can get better too. And a lot of settings don't ask that. So they just think they're not getting better. So I think both is cool because sometimes both improve and that's fantastic. I'm like, cool, yeah. this looks great. But I think it's cool when I show them a discrepancy and they go, oh, but that's okay. That's still good news to me. Awesome. So, so I would imagine a few of our listeners have a, a, a question. It really is a great follow-up as uh, Dr. Dave Hopper and I, we talked about uh, pain and him looking at this from a chiropractic perspective, how we see the sympathetic, parasympathetic interaction playing with pain. 
I would imagine, though, uh, whether folks listen to that or not, what's a mental health professional doing in the arena of of uh, physical pain? I, I think psychological pain, of course, we, we would be in that arena. What the heck are you doing uh, in the physical pain arena? And how do you bring biofeedback into the, the mental health approach uh, to pain management? Totally. And um, I get that question a lot. When I worked in an inpatient psychiatric facility, the patients were really surprised when I brought in a pain uh, management curriculum. They're like, why are you running this? Right. And I said, so I asked them this, I said, do you ever feel depressed because your pain's not getting better? Yes. Yeah. Do you ever feel anxious when your pain is getting worse? You don't know when it's going to get worse. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever had suicidal thoughts because of your pain? Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's all kinds of other things too, where it comes with like a lot of times if people have had a lot of trauma in their early childhood, it changes how their nervous system develops. So they're more likely to have things like fibromyalgia, IBS, low back pain. Um, and so what's interesting, not great, but what's interesting about pain is that it's perceived in the brain. You know, if we didn't have our brain, you wouldn't feel pain. Right. right. And so a lot of where we perceive pain is also where we perceive emotions, where we process memories. Right. Mm -hmm. So they've done there's really cool videos and experiments that I could go on and on about that talk about how um, there was a man sitting with his wife giving birth and he was in more pain than she was. He wasn't <laughs> giving birth, but he was screaming and he was like, this hurts so bad. And, um, and he didn't. And then there was another guy who thought he stepped on a nail. And then when they brought him to the hospital, the nail didn't go through his foot. He just thought it did. Yeah. So what we perceive and see with all of our senses can be so um, affected in terms of how we process pain. And even just, and then I think what we all come to talk about with HRV is stress affects yes. pain and pain affects stress. So my role as the um, aspiring psychologist, almost there about a year, <laughs> a couple months left, um, my role is to help them understand the relationship. It's also to help them understand how they can, if they can help manage their pain, they can help manage the anxiety and depression. If yes. they can manage the anxiety and depression, it can manage the pain. And what's great with working with chiropractors, physical therapists, massage therapists, acupuncturists, nutritionists, herbalists, all the things, right? Um, is that you can work as a team and really target the whole thing. Because if that person has trauma history and they're in fight or flight mode all the time, their body's not going to calm down just from, you know, one um, medication, right? right? Um, and so another part that we address too is addiction, which is very prevalent with um, like opioids and our um, muscle relaxers that we see. So my role is also to help with um, dependence on the pain medication and for possible um, substance abuse. That's a big, big one. So that is my role to answer long. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, tell them, I love it. Yeah, and the, the pain management is just, you know, in, in my work with trauma that, you know, the, the term we often use is that self-medicating is, you know, and, and I've been fascinating with the similarities between psychological and physical pain and that connection there as well. I, I would love to get a, a little technical and specific with you because one of the things that, that I am really fascinated with right now as we look at this is, you, you know, and I, I'm, I'm just all nerded out about residents frequency breathing rates like I, I'm trying to figure out like how do we get a hashtag uh, four breaths per minute uh, which I think is obviously the, 
the best best breathing rate because that that is mine. Uh, but <laughs> That's but impressive. I, I really, yeah, <laughs> I guess I I still don't know if it's impressive or not. But I, I'm taking it as uh, all this high altitude I got here in Colorado uh, and self enlightenment. Uh, the combination <laughs> of those two, though, my wife would definitely argue with the second one uh, of hitting that stage. But but I, I think, you know, I've experienced in my work in homelessness and trauma and addiction, just the devastation of what the, the, the medical industry, uh, specifically the pharmaceutical industry, um, did around pain and making like the pain a, a vital sign uh, to sell medication. And I think that history is it's not controversial for me to say that and not that medication isn't needed in certain situations. We just start giving it away like candy. Um, I, I, I'm very interested in, in how we can use biofeedback. Again, RF breathing is, is my just obsession right now. Uh, you know, uh, someone like you entering the conversation before the opiates are prescribed before and and the benzoids and I mean there there's all drawbacks to all of these even a leave I'm learning more and more from Dr. Dave not really a good you know if you got a headache maybe okay to take but you don't really want to take it two days in a row even which uh you know I popped those like candy when I was an athlete so I, you know, I wonder kind of where you see yourself, mental health, biofeedback as, as just a, a safe place to heal without this risk of further perpetuating this opiate epidemic that's just devastating so many totally. parts of our country right now. Totally. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to say in that. Um, I guess I would say a lot of times... And it's unfortunate, but a lot of times when I see patients for pain management after they've been on the medication for sometimes 20 years. So, I mean, it would be great when I see them before, but that's often not what happens because, you know, if we, we watch the, you know, if we read the literature, read the doc or watch the documentaries, you know, they go in and especially in like rural areas that don't have these integrative approaches, it was okay. Let's let's have the patient be on some type of medication and so they can feel better, right? And then there was also a lot of misconceptions on what, you know, if Boxycon was gonna be addictive or not. And obviously we all found out what happened with that. So, you know, I guess what I would say is for those that are listening that maybe have chronic pain or know, have a loved one with chronic pain, um, from what I've experienced clinically, and I think some of my colleagues would agree, it's never too late. Um, so even if they've already been on it or they're about to go on the medication, and again, like we've said, some people, it right. just depends on what's appropriate for them, but before or after or during, it's still so helpful. And what HRV biofeedback is so helpful in, in terms of managing chronic pain is that the research shows that those with chronic pain conditions and a lot of chronic illnesses have lower HRV than the normal population, right? Same with like, you know, generalized anxiety, PTSD, um, and other conditions. So, you know, and what we know about low HRV is that that's related to poor health outcomes, related to depression, anxiety, PTSD, um, and even just uh, history of trauma. And so I think what's really 
great about HRV biofeedback is that the resonance frequency breathing 20 minutes a day, ideally, and it's hard to do that at the beginning. I will say I'm working on that myself. Um, but when I yeah, don't tell, do don't tell our, our friend Ina, but I, uh, I, so I do my morning mindfulness with 20 minutes. So I do do that. That's and I awesome. Do 20 while I watch TV at night, but she's not, we're all but, work in progress. It's, all it's, right. a, it's a supplementary practice. So yes. And I tell my patients that too. So sometimes they start like five minutes, 10 minutes. Yes. Because uh, yeah. a lot of them develop chronic pain because of overexertion or they right. weren't moving at all so that when they're sitting still and doing breathing, it might feel uncomfortable for them because they've been breathing up here. Right. Um, and so when they do 20 minutes a day and like I always tell them, like, don't expect this to happen like overnight, yeah. you know, think about like going to the gym. If you do one workout, you're going to be sore. You're going to be like, why did I do this? This sucks. Yeah. And unless they really like working out, those are always fun. Yeah. Um, but you know, about four to six weeks, they start seeing change and it's yeah. a commitment and it's a lot of faith you have to have with it. And I think what's challenging and incredible dialectic here with the HRV biofeedback uh, resonance frequency training is, um, it becomes more than just something that relieves their pain and helps increase their HRV balance their nervous system. So it's not overly fight or flight, not overly parasympathetic, yeah. but it can be managing and it stays, you know, at homeostasis. Right. Yes. But I think what they also find is I remember this one patient, she described it to me. She goes, it's my safe haven. It's mm. what it's the most common safe I felt in my yeah. entire life. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. And I think that, you know, it's something that, you know, if you start it young, that's great. You can start at any age. I had, you know, a 95 year old woman doing it and she's like, I love this. It feels so good. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's, what's great about it. Cause some people feel like, you know, if I go to, sometimes people get nervous to go to therapy because they haven't right. gone and, and they've been having, you know, it's like, they're like 40, 50 and they've never gone and they don't even know what to do. What's nice with HRV biofeedback is it doesn't matter when you start. Right. Obviously, if you start earlier, that's great. But you can, I've seen people completely change their nervous system in a matter of months. Yeah. And that's, that's hopeful to me. And a even in terms of managing hypervigilance with PTSD, yep. managing the pain, um, and even just to build better relationships because they're in the present more. They're not thinking about what I have to do next. What did I do in the past? they're with their families, they're with their loved ones, and they're with themselves again. Yeah. And it's intimidating sometimes. And it's beautiful. Um, yeah. So I think that part's really incredible. And in that, you know, it takes time to adhere to it. But I had one page did, did 40 minutes every day. And I mean, his life completely turned around. It was incredible. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing, you know, and it's interesting that sort of build up to it, because I was like, when I first started learning about this and then we integrated into the app, I'm like, oh, I, I can do this 20 minutes, no problem. And I really like, I struggled. Like, like it was, it was like, you know, my breathing, like I, I kind of had to like take a few quick breaths to kind of almost catch up. So I, I think that like almost an onboarding of, you know, you, you can ramp up at your own pace, but it was like, you know, somebody who's practiced mindfulness now for like 15 years, I was like, I'm an old pro at this. It's like, no, this is actual training in a way that, you know, my normal sort of paced breathing on my own didn't really hit in the same way. And that's why I found so really right. powerful about it. And then watching my daily HRV readings 
just jumped to levels I didn't know old man Matt could get to at this point. Like I never thought I'd see in the hundreds. Like, and now I'm I'm pushing a 90 average this month. I, That's I, awesome. I, I have those days where I just like fall off a cliff, like when the Nuggets lose in the playoffs last night, I was all depressed. So wasn't in the hundreds this morning because I stayed up late and it was a bummer. But, uh, you know, that that's the real cool thing that I see with this as well. And, you know, the, the interesting dynamic, too, is taking a, an a, a opiate pill, a pain has has that immediate effect. And I think that's where and the medical model has done a lot of good for the world. And yet I think that instant, you know, kind of fix has got us in so many trouble because of the side effects and everything that we see with that. And that's, you know, yeah, there may be some minor side effects if you jump like to a 40 minute of practice right away. But, you know, it's it's so minimum compared to, you know, just like I said, that that devastation uh, that we see from this epidemic. Right. And I think the part that the pill misses, and it's not just the part, many, it's, it's being able to engage in mindfulness. It's being able to engage with yourself, your family, like combining therapy with HIV biofeedback helps them recover and heal as a person. Again, the medication can help manage it for a little bit or turn down the volume. Um, but it doesn't rebuild the life that I've seen people have when they get on that journey. And it's, and it can be a a big change. I've seen patients where, you know, they come in, they're like, I just came here because I thought I was going to learn how to reduce my pain. And then I ended up changing my entire life. Right. But that's like what we have when we have people that are in recovery from addiction is you don't just take away the substance. You change your entire life, people, places, and things, because, you know, if we stick with the mindset of instant gratification, of course, we're always going to be let down because what happens when we build tolerance and what happens when we don't, you know, if our doctor doesn't prescribe it anymore and it's, it's traumatic for these patients that have relied on it for 20 years and then they're told to do, you know, okay, you got to do something else now. Yeah. And it's scary. And it's kind of like a, I don't know, I kind of see it as like a rebirth, right? Like they're like, okay, we're going to do life differently now because this wasn't working. And if I, do the inner healing and build support and connection. And we used to do HIV biofeedback in groups and it was fun because they'd all look at each other's screens and be like, oh, I'm, I'm more in sync than you. <laughs> and I mean, we don't want them to like, you know, put each other down or right. anything, but they had fun with it. And then they would ask each other questions or like, how do you do that? Can you show me? Like, what, what do you put your hand awesome. on? Does it help to put your hand on your belly? Like they learn from each other. And um, it was like a team effort. And I think what's cool with like, optimal HIV is like, you know, when you have like your group of patients, you can almost kind of like make, you know, kind of show like the progress the group is making and then the yeah. individual is making and it becomes like a um, collective movement, which is super cool. Like I've told my sister, I was like, me and you need to do this so that we can see who can get their HRV up. And again, yeah. you know, it's kind of counterintuitive because you don't want to be a competition, but I think it's motivating for some people to want to better their health where they can actually see it. Oh, trust me, uh, with my team uh, being, I believe the oldest person on the team, the fact that I uh, am running laps around the younger members, I I take pride in that. (laughs) But that's a great thing to be proud of, right? Like like, like, there are worse things to be proud of. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. really interesting because what what is you know with, with some of my, my team members in their even 30s 
like what what are they doing where the the guy pushing 50 is uh doubling their scores and it's it's not like I, I i'm shaming anybody uh due to their heart even people that i love and could do that with but but it, it is that that challenge piece when we look at it from that group perspective if we if we have that a little bit of psychological safety there where we can do this without make, hurting people in any way shape or form it is a it, it's a fun it's a language uh yeah. that, that we have it's it's a quantitative uh, language that uh, we can have the more serious moments is, dude, you're in the 20s this week. Uh, wh wh what do you need? How, how can we support you uh, for that recovery? Right. And I think what's great about the changes that HRV biofeedback is making is, you know, a lot of times in the research would say it would say um, patient self-reported adhering to daily breathing. And that was great because that's what we had. Yeah. And the fact that we can check each day, like that's going to yes. change our research, which yeah. I'm very interested in. That's going to change, um, you know, adherence. I think people want to it's the accountability piece, right? Like right. the clinician sees, oh, they're not actually doing it. They can you know, intervene and be like, what's going on? And it's with compassion, of course. Right. Yes. Um, but sometimes I've had patients say they did and I go, did you? And they're like, no, I just didn't want to let you down. And there's <laughs> like, and we're here to help you like get right. on board. It's, you know, it's, I think what's great is that we have more forms of accountability, more ways to gain insight. And then the patient can go, Oh, like, you know, I like the tags where it says, you know, oh, when I drank last night, yeah. I noticed my HRV was pretty rough this morning. Yeah. Or when I um, was eating not so great the past few weeks, my yeah. HRV is not so great. So it just kind of gives you like a, a compass to follow, right? Or a path to follow. Um, and it's, and I think what's nice about it is there's a lot of compassion because it's not that there's yeah. one number you want. It's just right. higher, the better. And if yeah. it goes down a little bit, you know, it is what it is like that happens. Cause that's just what our heart does, but it's great that we can be able to just, I think it's really great because it incorporates a piece of mindfulness just being objective and just Absolutely. not trying to judge ourselves. Just go, huh, what's going on? What yeah. can I do about that? Yeah. And I find like that three minute morning reading is I, I really start out my first moments of consciousness usually are thinking about my wellness, you, you know, like that habit that I've gotten into. And, and as I tell people, it's like, how much fuel do I have in my tank today? Um, you know, uh, I like do, I, do I have any excuses? Like, and it's funny because, you know, I think some people, and I was sort of like this initially when I started playing around, oh, like, you know, I, I've, you know, I have a master's degree in psychology. I overanalyze everything about my life. Of course, I'm going to wake up and guess my HRV score each. And the answer is no. But what, what I find interesting is around 2 to 2.30, which is sort of my end of my creative kind of stretch of the day during the workday, my HRV score comes true regardless. Uh, that, that I can like... I know, like I, I was a 55 RMSSD today, which is still not bad for my age, but way under that 90 average that I'm trying to get to this, this month. And so, you know, I've got some accounting. I'm going to balance my QuickBooks this afternoon because I, I don't need a whole lot of juice, so to speak, uh, uh, to, to balance a bank statement. That's just kind of, I, I need to be accurate, but that's, that's the key thing. So, so that, that, that initial kind of mindfulness that you're thinking of, I think is so, so key with that. 
Well, and I think that's so great to, I, you know, I haven't thought about it like that, where you can kind of gauge where your HRV is during the day, because a big part of pain management is pacing, yeah. right? So it's them understanding when are they going to be able, because they, you know, if they're having low pain, they don't want to just yes. go all out because that's going right. to, you know, result in a flare up possibly. Yeah. But for them to be like, okay, so afternoons, I could, you know, maybe commit to watching the grandkids and play with them a little bit more. Yes. Maybe at that time I need to, you know, use my heat and yeah. relax a little bit or, you know, reach out to my support group, what have yeah. you. So I think what's cool about that is that, you know, you could do a reading and do it multiple times during the day to kind of Absolutely. see, okay, what, how does my body, you know, not just, you know, the, the internal clock we have, but how does my heart's clock, yeah. you know, change throughout the day? And that's totally normal. And I think that's cool to show, like, it's not always going to be the same. It just depends on, you know, the amount of energy. Cause I've, I've watched some of your podcast. You guys do a great job talking about, you know, how much uh, like long-term uh, HRV improvement is a result of good sleep, yeah. diet, uh, exercise, um, mental flexibility. Like there's a lot of things too on top. And I think that's, what's great about the, the combination we talked about earlier is that, you know, HRV biofeedback training, like the breathing training is fantastic, but I think it, I mean, we see in the research, it does a lot better if we target the other things that could be pulling it down. Absolutely. So I think of that interaction effect of flexibility and the training, then we see people do better. If they only rely on HRV training, it's great. It's a good start. It's kind of like their buy-in, yeah. but it's getting that whole person. And I think what's helpful with the, the data is that it gives them the data. It gives them motivation to work on their own inner growth yeah. and do holistic healing. And that's, that's what I'm all about. And I think what our field is really trying to move towards. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me, let me ask you about moving towards, because, you, you know, I've been fascinated with the, the intersection of technology and mental health for, for years. I have a drawer full of old school biofeedback, uh, you know, and I, I'm not going out and buying the $10,000 equipment, uh, you know, just because I never had the training um, in that in the environments like child welfare and those sort of things just had no funding um, in order to bring that that technology in in any kind of meaningful, we couldn't get reimbursed for it in any way. So I was, I was looking for like the cheap alternatives to, to integrate some of this in. You're, you're sort of in the world earlier on where technology is, you know, just everywhere. And I, I think developing, I, I really believe in the mental health field at such a, a rapid rate. And I, I sort of wonder where you see things going, because obviously you've decided to specialize in, in the biofeedback arena. I'd love for you to like step up into maybe a 30,000 foot view of mental health. And what would your predictions of, of sort of your generation um, coming up who has had technology in a way mine uh, did it as part of that sort of revolution of the internet and email and all that. Uh, I, I sort of was, you know, entering my career as email became a thing. Uh, I was still faxing things, uh, which is just appalling to me nowadays. But, uh, you know, so I kind of wonder what, what you see as, as you look out into maybe the next five or 10 years, where this intersection of mental health and technology uh, might lead us. And maybe in that small town in West Virginia that has maybe not a biofeedback practitioner, but maybe a mental health therapist 
what what sort of tools might uh, that person uh, start to implement as well? Definitely. So I just want to say first that for any of you that are interested in HRV biofeedback and you're a student or you're newly licensed, um, I highly recommend just stepping your feet into the water and just take a look, right? Watch some of these podcasts, um, watch the, you know these videos on YouTube. Um, it's, it's such a need and it's so necessary for us to understand the whole picture of someone's healing and, and peak performance, right? Yeah. Um, I, I always encourage my colleagues, you know, when I took the class, I remember sitting at the desk, just like, what, this is so exciting. <laughs> and I was asking, um, Dr. Gewurz was my mentor and he was, I just asked him so many questions yeah. and I was so pumped. And you know, all my colleagues who took his course, I was like, are you gonna get certified? Are you gonna get certified? Like we all gotta get certified. Yeah. <laughs> and because, you know, we're at, I'll just say from like a student perspective, who's about to, you know, get into the early career mode is I think doing as a student was such a great idea because, you know, we don't, there wasn't really an excuse for me not to do it. Like I wasn't right. too busy, you know, seeing clients. I wasn't too busy, you know, I, I didn't have a, you know, full family yet. And so yeah. it was just me. And so I was like, is it's the world's my oyster? Let's do this. And, yeah. you know, there's something to say about, you know, I, I really hope that, you know, we continue to have these clinicians, you know, still go through the BCI training. It's excellent. It really covers all the competencies. Um, but I think what's cool is I remember in your presentation, there was an individual who said, how do I apply this in settings that, like you said, you know, whether insurance doesn't reimburse it or they don't can't, you know, it's just like the technology is too expensive. And sometimes for some patients, like uh, just depending on their level of functioning, it can be harder to comprehend. Right. So we still have to be helpful and not become something they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. (laughs) Um, And I, I told her about this, you know, we have great websites with breathing pacers that are just auditory. Um, There's, you know, like thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, YouTube videos of just pace breathing. And so if we can at least just get people aware of how important breath work is, and then also just the conversation on HRV, like I would just playing YouTube videos to groups and group therapy, just giving them little brochures or little infographics, um, showing people different accounts like Instagram, Facebook. I mean, social medias are, you know, the world are oysters. So um, sharing that with our supervisors, sharing it with our colleagues. And um, it doesn't have to be something we use because we're at a bottom. It can be yeah. something where it, you know, I helps with work wellness and, um, you know, burnout and peak performance. Yeah. So I think it's with all of that being said, I think it's about introducing it in a way that's feasible, depending mm-hmm. on the context, like the environment, the access yeah. to resources, um, I would say it's also like, I think I talked to you about it, sometimes kicking and screaming, saying it needs to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, so doing what we can to advocate because that's what the founders of biofeedback have had to do for a long time. Yes. And they still talk about it at the conference where, you know, it wasn't just something that everyone was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, it was, right. there's a lot of skepticism, you know, because it kind of challenges typical psychotherapy. It's not talk therapy. It's, it's a using medical grade equipment or maybe using yeah. more like consumer friendly equipment um, to look at physiology. And that's sometimes that scares people yeah. um, or it can be maybe out of their comfort zone. So I think it's the feasibility, advocating where we can, um, sharing what we know about it and sharing our excitement, be enthusiastic about it. And I would say, you know, in each setting we're at, at least acknowledge it. 
right? Because yeah. um, a lot of times in settings I was at, no one even knew about it. And that was the case for me when I started graduate school. I had no idea what it was. I knew what neurofeedback was, um, but I had no idea what HRV biofeedback was. Yeah. Usually most people it's the other way around, but with my experience with my head injury, right. I knew about it. And so I think it's about spreading the word. It's about um, if you're nervous, check it out. You know, yeah. it's like stepping out of our comfort zones because, you know, the brain is an organ and we have to treat it like it's an organ. If we only base it off of how we've, um, there's a psychiatrist who talks about how, you know, we're still assessing people based off of how we diagnose Ab Abraham Lincoln for depression. And that was yeah. forever ago. Right. right? Yeah. And so if we can also look at, you know, biomarkers, this is, can tell us a lot about treatment outcomes. Right. It can predict, um, prognosis, help us understand risk factors, protective factors. You know, it's, adding this into your research, whether it's like one variable, it's not your main variable, but incorporating it. Yeah. I think it's just really being willing to step into it, you know? And um, I noticed, I remember I had a little bit of fear just because, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not a nurse. Yeah. And I just kind of jumped into something that was uncomfortable and it was the best thing I ever did. So for anyone listening, that's like, I don't know about this biofeedback thing. Like, you know, I've been doing talk therapy for years you don't have to stop doing what you're doing. Just right. add something to make it even better. And um, it's totally worth it. Totally worth it. Yeah. And, and it's exciting to be in this space with mental health as, as I've, you know, I, I like to say therapy has become cool since my day because I and talk therapy is, is still usually a component of all of this, but you sat in a chair, I sat in a chair. And I think things like EMDR with the, the eye movement where you might be following a scanner or, you know, what we've learned about tapping even and, and the, the evidence behind these things, I, I hope is opening up our thinking because I was, you know, I, I was in that time where cognitive behavioral therapy was sort of replacing behavioralism of uh, that really strict thing. And, and then there were the Freudians still uh, float around with their libido and superego and this, that, or the other. It's like, how do you quantify that? Uh, you know, I, you know, and it was interesting, but it wasn't, there, there wasn't like, it just, nothing gave me anything to hold on to. And that's where, you know, initially when I started to learn about the brain, uh, especially around my work with trauma, it, oh, this is tangible. This shows up on a functional MRI. And now with like heart rate variability, it's, it's something that's accessible, not only as a, a monitoring tool, but also as a way to help people improve their mental health as well. And, and I, that's where like, it's almost, I feel like we're in a, you know, evangelist sort of mode of, Hey, this is out there. This is accessible. Uh, this is validated. Um, let, let's do this. And I think that there's an openness now, uh, hopefully where it's not a segment of mental health, but it'll integrate in. So Totally, totally. And I mean, it's, you know, I've had times where I've had, I've tried to, you know, propose that I bring it up and, you know, I incorporate what I can. I, te I just teach them the breathing technique and then I try to feel out what their breathing rate is. And like, that's not ideal, but it's, yeah. it's something. And I think what's great about, you know, HRV biofeedback is you can pair it with, you know, 
where I worked before, that was part of uh, trauma treatment was you would do EMDR and biofeedback because yeah. you want to prepare the patient to be able to regulate when they're reprocessing their trauma, right? Yeah. And so if they can't regulate, it, they might not be ready for the treatment sometimes. And so um, my supervisor always was like, I want my patients to do both because then it's a technique they can use when they're in crisis or they feel really overwhelmed, but it's also something they can use on a regular basis, like brushing your teeth to just improve their regulation. Because a lot of times people will do different talk therapies for trauma and they're not necessarily getting better, but it's their physiology isn't getting better. So how, if you're, if your body's not feeling okay, how are you supposed to feel? Okay. Yeah. Right. And so Yes, we can tell our body, you know, we're calm, we're okay. But if your body does not believe you, it will not follow, right? And so we have to train our body to tell it that it's calm again. And sometimes, you know, that takes time. And, um, but it's, I, it's so complimentary to everything that we do. And I mean, even with ADHD, it's been really great. It helps them to improve uh, attention, working memory, um, uh, yeah, attention, working memory and like, like switching. So it helps them to really be able to practice mindfulness. So, I mean, it's really just something that is great for anybody. It's so awesome. Like it's something where like, if someone's not sure if they want to do like therapy, it's a good introduction to just practicing self-compassion, um, tuning in with the body mindfulness, um, and really just, refraining from like avoidance. Cause a lot of times about feedback helps us be with whatever we've been avoiding. Um, and it's just, it can be intense and powerful and beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I have to delay gratification about as long as I possibly could. I think I've waited 40 minutes to ask this follow-up question because I, I am also very interested in virtual reality. Um, uh, one is I love to play games in virtual reality. I'll just throw that out there. Totally. Uh, I, the, 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 the more practical uses of it, I haven't quite found as I've tried some of the productivity tools. Hasn't, I don't know, hasn't, hasn't kind of resonated with me in that way yet. But I'm, I'm really, as someone who's just been fascinated with VR for, for several years now, um, it just seems like a technology with a whole heck of a lot of possibilities when you look at things again, like, and for those EMDR, you know, it was kind of named after the eye movement piece, but there's so much more to that, that, that the EMDR is just re- really, uh, the acronym has become the therapy, but a way to stimulate the body while healing from trauma and I, I just see so many opportunities. And so I, I just, I had to ask, Sort of, sort of, as you're entering the VA, which I know has done some really uh, fascinating work, kind of a, a, what I'm familiar with is around exposure therapy with vets um, and VR. I, I just would love to hear what, what, you, what you think and in, in the role that virtual reality might play in mental health moving forward. Definitely. And I'll share a little anecdote. I was just uh, in Oklahoma with my stepdaughter and they had this super awesome virtual reality game. Um, And what was, I mean, the one I did, it was like a race. They had wind blowing at you. It was awesome Um, and totally worth the five bucks. And, but they had this other one next to it and it was very real life, uh, similar to like driving. Um, So it had like the wind blowing, it had the full dashboard, it had screens 
forward and around. So it may not just be like the goggle virtual reality, yeah. but it can also be yeah. just like uh, a simulation, right? Um, and I think what's great about those is it really adds the ecological validity to exposure, right? Like if we have, there's a marginal exposure, which is great, but I think what's really cool about virtual reality is that it really can be a lot more relevant to what they're seeing in their flashbacks, their nightmares, their, um, their memories. I think it's just, it's going to help people to really apply what they do in virtual reality to the rest of their life in a way that's a lot more, and when I say ecologically valid, it's a lot more, you know, similar to what they're going to see or what they've experienced in their life. Um, and I think too, what's I've personally experienced, and I'm interested to learn more about this is when I do VR, I don't know about you, but I get kind of like dizzy and nauseous sometimes um, just because I would imagine just because it's just a different way of perception. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm interested in learning more about that, but I think that that piece doesn't always happen in imaginal exposure. And so when you have someone like actually looking around and they're looking up and they're looking to their sides or they have the wind blowing at them, it can help activate the other senses that are involved that are, you know, uh, activating stimuli for like their PTSD. So right. I think it's just going to really open our eyes to a lot of things about how we can help people recover with more context relevant stimuli. And I think it's also going to be um, awesome to be able to help us as clinicians understand what they're you know, what they were experiencing. Cause yeah. I think that is really powerful for us to really, you know, it's obviously not going to be the same. Right. But for yeah. us to kind of get, you know, a glimpse of an idea of what they are re-experiencing all the time and help us really gain that empathy and compassion for that patient. So it's, I think it's really going to help us build understanding empathy and just really expand the, um, the reliability uh, of these types of interventions for patients. I think that's going to be really impactful. And I, and I mean, I'm sure it's going to be intense, but um, I think it's also going to help people really face things that are hard to do in the room sometimes, or because some settings you can't necessarily leave the office or you can't right. go walk around and stuff. You know, uh, I've done, you know, in vivo exposure for social anxiety with a patient in their, on their college campus, but not all settings are going to let me do that. So if we have the VR, I think that's going to really help us capture the you know, the type of exposure that the patient needs to really get better, but yeah. stay tuned. I'm excited to learn more. <laughs> yeah. And it just, it's, it's engaging another sense. Like I, I think, Multiple. you know, you, you've got the audio, you've got the visual, you know, the, the you know, with the tapping or the, you know, kind the of stimulation you get with the hand or, you know, vibrations, like we're really, I think to, to me, what's exciting is that we're, we're getting under the skin and helping to heal the, the really the biological, neurobiological uh, causes of a range of mental illness. Having, I, you know, worked with traumatic brain injuries. It's like, I'm really fascinated with, with that, you know, as, as well as, is, is can we have access to help to heal in different ways? And I think what the trauma world has taught us is I'm just fascinated right now, because this was not even talked about really when I was being trained, you can really heal trauma without sharing your trauma with your therapist. Like if you would have said, Hey, Matt, I'll, I'll bet you a thousand dollars back when I didn't have that, that we would get there. I would have no way would I have taken that. Like, like to, to, for us to have gotten there, 
Um, just and, and now we've got these act where we're figuring out how the senses really impact mental health. So totally, totally. Yeah. And I and I mean, I think that's what's so important is like when we tell patients to practice grounding, we say, you know, what are five things you see, four things you yes. hear, three things you um you know, feel two things you taste, one thing you, I'm trying to remember them, but we do the five things, right? right? And to do grounding. And so like, if we're doing that for grounding, why don't we always address all of those in therapy? And so like, right. I'm very interested in learning like the, you know, the um, emotional freedom technique, the, um, I'm interested in learning EMDR later in my career too, because they really target the mind body right. uh, approach with looking at cognitions, emotions, and somatic symptoms. And that's all of us, right? And then there's always, you know, for people where it's relevant is like their social component and their spirituality. Um, yeah. I think what's really beautiful is I've had some people use um, what, you know, HIV biofeedback or mindfulness or meditation to help them connect with their spirituality, whatever that may be. And a quick thing I want to add about virtual reality is I think it's going to be cool too, because what's great about that is we can also track their physiology and we can see yeah. how do they react and just to show patients like, Hey, so when you're facing these triggers, it makes sense that you're feeling really overwhelmed. Like look at your heart rate, right. look at your skin conductance. You know, it's like, you know, it really validates them. Cause a lot of times they're told, Oh, stop being overreactive or like, let right. it go. It was in the past. Their body can't, and we have right. to help them get there. And right. so that validation can feel so important and it's such a big piece in their healing so that they feel like understood and they believe themselves. Right. Yeah. And if we can make it fun too, I mean, that, that's the thing that I think VR also opens up the opportunity is to, to make it a, to gamify some of this stuff. I, I really think that sitting in, you know, sort of with yourself with a lower level of, stimulus whether you're following a breathing pace or something like that it's still going to be an important component of this uh but but is there a way to as people now spend hours upon hours including me at times uh playing these games is there a way to integrate mental health in, in a positive way i think we spend a lot of times worried about how video games are impacting yeah. you know child development this that and the other but there's a real possibility there I, I think that we can integrate some of this into games and, and in really innovative ways and, and i think that 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 technology probably exists if you put the pieces together it's just not Totally. necessarily there to download for $14.99 yet yeah um, yeah but, but can't be far away right and I mean if we have things now like you know like every time that their HRV goes up the lotus flower goes like this or the yes. balloon goes up you know like obviously that's not like you know Xbox game but I think we could get there where it becomes something that's more fun um and I mean granted I think it's fun to watch the flower go like this but not everyone yeah. does <laughs> Um, yeah. so I know it's, uh, I think I'm, I think what's great about technology is that it improves exponentially. It's not linear, it's exponential. Right. And, you know, we're, it's only a matter of time till thing, it becomes like a part of people's daily life. And the fact that we have the apps that we do to do that and the heart rate, you know, monitors that are user-friendly to do that. And they're reliable. Yeah. Like they're not just, you know, right. um, I think it's only a matter of time. And I'm very hopeful, very excited and excited for the ride. 
Awesome, me too. I'm thinking Jedi mind stuff in, in my video game. So yes. uh, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have a flower within that as well. But uh, <laughs> Anna, this, this has been spectacular. So I wanna, I wanna thank you for your time. Um, you know, if, if anybody's like dying to get a hold of you, uh, can you give them a little bit, maybe, maybe just information we'll also put in the show notes as well. But, uh, I think there'll be a lot of people really excited about this conversation. So if, totally. if somebody's interested in sort of, uh, you, how, how might they, uh, follow your, your progress as you enter this next stage? Yeah. So I feel like some good options would be, um, so if- Anna Pollard, I think you can see it on the video here, how it's spelled, um, two N's. <laughs> and um, I would say my LinkedIn's always good because I'm always posting updates on there. So it's just Anna Pollard and it's a picture with me with my hair down. Um, we are, I'm connected with Matt on LinkedIn. And then um, my email is a Pollard. So just all lowercase at Alliant, A-L-L-I-A-N-T dot E-D-U. Um, I love to help people kind of get on board and down the line. I want to be a mentor teaching biofeedback. So um, I can't do that yet because um, I'm, tr- I'm a not licensed clinical psychologist yet, but I can help you get on board and just even support you along the way because the more people I get on board with this, the better. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we'll put that information in the show notes as well. So thank you. And I'm excited to follow your career uh, moving forward and so glad uh, uh, we connected. But one, you made booth time at the conference so much more enjoyable and uh, just really enjoyed getting to know you. And really, this was to take a deep dive into your thinking has been fabulous. So uh, thank you for your time. And uh, I'm going to try to find a way to have you back soon as well. Awesome. Take care. And thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody.